you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. On a monster roller coaster ride with your brain. It seems like I should have one of those uh, flight stewards or flight stewardesses take and uh, stand at the front and give the uh, instructions for the oxygen when it drops down for the thing. It says we should add that to the whole thing. So it's there. Welcome to the show, my friends, relatives, uh, neighbors, uh, everybody who's come on the show. <laughs> my relatives, what? My relatives don't listen to the show. They hate me already. Uh, anyway, guys, thanks for tuning in. Go to YouTube.com for just Chris Voss. Hit the bell notification button. Go to Goodreads.com for just Chris Voss. And uh, go to all the groups on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. The big in- uh, LinkedIn group of 122,000 people over on LinkedIn there. Search for it. Find it. And subscribe to LinkedIn Newsletter as well. We love that thing going on over there. Uh, usually what I do say is refer your friends, neighbors, and relatives to watch the show. Your relatives, not my relatives, because my relatives already hate me. And yours will hate me soon, soon enough, is it? Soon enough as it is. <laughs> so we're excited to announce my new book is coming out. It's called Beacons of Leadership, Inspiring Lessons of Success in Business and Innovation. It's going to be coming out on October 5th, 2021. And I'm really excited for you to get a chance to read this book. It's filled with a multitude of my insightful stories, lessons, my life, and experiences in leadership and character. I give you some of the secrets from my CEO entrepreneurial toolbox that I use to scale my business success, innovate, and build a multitude of companies. I've been a CEO for, uh, what is it, like uh, 33 35 years now. We talk about leadership, the importance of leadership, how to become a great leader, and how anyone can become a great leader as well. Or order the book wherever fine books are sold. Today, we have In the Hands of God, How Evangelical Belonging Transforms Migrant Experience in the United States. We have Johanna uh, Bard Richland on the show with us today. She's going to be talking about her amazing new book that just came out May 24th. 2022, hot off the presses. Uh, She is an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Oregon in Eugene, Oregon. Who knew that was going to happen? Eugene, Oregon, uh, University of Oregon. Uh, She specializes in anthropology of religion and psychological anthropology with expertise in evangelical Christianity in the U.S. and Brazil. A U.S. migration and studies in effect and emotion based on extensive ethnographic research conducted among Brazilian migrants in greater Washington, D.C. She recently completed her first book that we're going to be talking about today, and she earned a Ph.D. in anthropology from Stanford University, probably in Stanford, Oregon. I'm just kidding. It's not in Stanford, Oregon. Don't get, don't do that, people. Don't believe me sometimes. So these are just the jokes. A master's in theology studies, which are from Harvard Divinity School, which uh, and a B.A., from Wesleyan University. I'm not going to do any location jokes anymore. Uh, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. There you go. Thanks for coming. Am I getting your first name right, Johanna? Johanna. 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 My apologies. <laughs> no worries. I'll learn to get that right. Uh, so give us your .com so people can find you on the interwebs. So if you um, just Google my name, Johanna Richland at UO, my, you'll, my faculty page at the University of Oregon will come up. Um, also on LinkedIn. 
There you go. Uh, what motivates you want to write this book? So I have always been interested in religion and how people make sense of the world through their belief and through their faith. Um, and especially for people who come from kind of marginalized circumstances and how they draw on faith to help them cope and help them alleviate some of that difficulty. And uh, I decided to go to graduate school to continue studying these issues. Um, first at Harvard Divinity School in terms of kind of U.S. society. And then at Stanford, uh, I did my doctoral research on the same topics, um, looking at Brazilian migrants and their religious experience in the United States. And that this book is a, a, a finished product of that research. Mm -hmm. And why did you decide to study Brazilian migrants? What drew you to that? Yeah, so I... Um, I had learned that a lot of migrants coming from Latin America in particular, which is a predominantly Catholic region, uh, were converting to evangelical Christianity when they came to the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and I traveled to Brazil a few times to learn Portuguese, having become really interested in Brazil and Brazilian history and Brazilian culture and religion. Um, and in Brazil, I had the opportunity to attend a lot of evangelical churches. And then when I came back to the United States, noticed that in places like San Francisco, in New York, in D.C., in Boston, these very same churches were all over the place mm -hmm. um, and were catering to Brazilian migrants here. And so much like other migrant groups from Latin America, oftentimes when migrants come with their Catholic religion or perhaps even um, already believing in evangelical Christianity, but not quite as intensely. What happens in the United States, what I found is that there is a kind of dramatic intensification of that faith. Um, and so I became really interested in what the relationship was between being a migrant in the U.S. and what that experience was like and how that might alter and change uh, religious longing and what people look for in religion. And then also how that religious experience in turn shapes what it means to be a migrant here in the United States. Mm -hmm. So they're switching from Catholicism to evangelical Christianity? Yeah, so there were two things that I found. One was either that people were converting from Catholicism. Um, sometimes these were folks who had grown up in parishes and their entire lives were uh, organized around the Catholic faith and they felt devoutly Catholic. Other times, some of the people I spoke with said that they weren't really practicing, but it was more of a cultural um, kind of identity. And here in the United States, they needed something more, um, more intense and more devout. And they found that through evangelical Christianity. Um, another subset of the people I talked to had already converted to evangelical Christianity in Brazil. So mm -hmm. in Brazil, as in many other places in Latin America, across Africa, as well as across Asia, has experienced a, um, a surge of evangelical um, popularity um, where uh, churches are drawing converts from many different religions, but primarily from Catholicism, um, at least in Latin America and many other places. Um, but here in the United States, those folks who had already been exposed to evangelical Christianity um, became much more deeply devout. So rather than saying it was something that they went to because their families went to or their neighborhoods went to or they had grown up in those churches, um, this was something that they really found to be an organizing principle and cosmology of their life. Um, and a lot of people described that by saying, if I thought I had faith in Brazil, I had no idea. If I thought that this was what sincere belief was, I had no idea until I came to the United States. Boy, the Pope's not going to be happy. He's losing business. Um, yes. <laughs> is, is there a reason that the, the Catholic 
churches here aren't picking up that those people or is I think I've gotten kind of the implication that maybe they weren't really true Catholics in Brazil and now they're really like finding I don't know I'll I'll leave that to yeah. you. Yeah, I think that's I think that's an, that's a question that goes right to the center of things. Um mm-hmm. so what I found in my research was that um US Catholic institutions that catered to migrants even if they had masses in Portuguese and they were um, trying to recruit uh, migrants to those masses, they tended to be perceived as quite impersonal, bureaucratic, and cold. Hmm. And that was in contrast to how evangelical churches were perceived, which was much more familiar about personal faith and personal healing um, and based on an individual's experience, uh, not only of faith, but also of community. And so that uh, in my findings, was very much more uh, satisfying to the needs of what migrants here were experiencing. Um, and I should say that most of the people that I spoke to were undocumented migrants. So about 70% of Brazilian migrants in the United States are undocumented. Um, and uh, while Brazilians are a case study of kind of Latin Americans more general, that is quite representative that a lot of uh, the undocumented population in the United States is from Latin America. Um and particularly for folks who are living in the United States undocumented without um, social support, without access to legal visibility, um, education, um, health care, et cetera. These places of worship are not just about faith, but they're, they're very much more about um, social support and about um, kind of emotional solace. Uh, and so I think that the evangelical churches, which were able to directly speak to people's needs as individuals, as migrants, rather than a more kind of community uplift focus, which was the Catholic church's focus, um, drew people in more. Yeah. And human beings need community. Mm -hmm. We need social community, especially when you come to a uh, strange place like America. Mm -hmm. I'll give you, it's pretty strange these days. Uh, and uh, and maybe there's language barriers or cultural barriers or and sometimes there's not a, there's some good people in this country and some bad people. I'm just letting you in right now to know about that going on. Um, and not everyone's friendly. Um, uh, but I think that's good because human beings need community. And mm-hmm. it sounds interesting. We talk a lot about different thing aspects of religion on this show and, and book authors that have come on. But it sounds like religion is really good at integrating people. I we talked about before about the show, and I, I'd heard and read, um, and I wasn't sure if it was substantiated because I hear a lot. I'm on the internet, <laughs> I'm on Twitter a lot, and I read a lot, but I'm not sure what how much I believe. We're actually one of the better countries at being able to integrate uh, migrants and having a, a melting pot. We've been doing this melting pot for a while. I guess we're good mm-hmm. at it, maybe. Yeah. So I think some of the kind of um, prevailing theories about why it is in the United States that um, religion tends to be something that helps people assimilate to this country rather than as a barrier. It's more of a bridge than a barrier in the scholarship and the language is that because we're a predominantly Christian nation where Mm. even though we have attrition and decline in terms of Christianity, still the majority of people in this country identify as Christian. Um, Christian migrants who come to this country, they can use that as a resource to assimilate. That if they identify as Christian, whether Catholic or evangelical, um, there's already a cultural kind of archetype in terms of holidays, in terms of belief systems, theology is how that might correspond to 
um, pull yourself up by the bootstraps or a Protestant work ethic, right? Those are things that are not completely foreign. Um, in Europe, you have a different situation where a lot of migrants tend to be um, Muslim. And so religion tends to be more of a barrier. Um, mm. We also have countries in Western Europe, which are receiving more migrants who um, already don't identify as strongly with Christianity as the United States continues to do in the 21st century. And um, religion in general, if you look at France, that there's a sense of wanting to very strongly separate public culture from any sort of religion outpouring. Mm. Um, and so the context is different. And that's why you get a sense of kind of religion being the means in the United States to being a bridge rather than a barrier um, in Europe. Yeah. I'm thinking now about uh, the separation of racism. And of course, since we're a Christian country, we have been for 450 years. Uh, the, the Muslim thing is an issue for a lot of countries. Uh, and there's a stigma of uh, prejudice, uh, prejudices and stuff. But I know that in places, I think Minnesota, different things in this country, mm -hmm. there's places in uh, Canada that integrate um, the Muslim community really well mm -hmm. um, and stuff. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting. I think in France, I think one of the problems is they end up in a lot of bad areas or slums. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's that contributes to the problem, I think, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in the U.S., I think another piece of it that's important to note is that religious institutions have always been important to civic culture. And mm -hmm. so even though you would have groups um, and waves, Catholics, Jews, Muslims coming into this country, they were able to use the same institutional structures as churches to set up schools, set up hospitals, set up community centers, um, and get that kind of visibility and kind of seat at the table in, in some ways that because our uh, country valorizes religion in that way, that even if they're different faiths, if they fit into those kinds of organizational slots, then they um, provide benefits for the community adherents. And of course, they can help school each other and change our language and stuff mm -hmm. uh, and help it teaching and educating and getting switched over. I remember, uh, I think a month or two ago, we had uh, Learning America, one was a fight for educational justice on refugee children by mm. Luma Muffley, I believe. And she had come, uh, she came from, I think, a Palestinian and Jordanian uh, refugee. And then she came to America and set up schools to teach, um, to teach people how to learn the language because they weren't converting on learning the language. Mm -hmm. And uh, so a lot of that's really important. How does this sit? Because we've had a lot of discussions with authors on the show about the white nationalism part of religion. I think it's about 30% of the white nationalism. They're very anti-immigrant. They're very anti, they're very racist and stuff like that. How does that fit into the whole body of Christianity and church and, and those two together getting along? Does it provide some cover for migrants from that yeah. end of the religious spectrum? I think it's a, I think it's an excellent question, and I think it's something very much to be determined because as well, the situation that we have in the United States is coming to a head in many ways, mm -hmm. but with regards to American Christianity, you have a situation where there's declining population among white Christians, among my white mainline Protestants, as well as Catholics. Mm -hmm. And so you have every five years, the Pew Forum comes out with a poll that shows that the percentage of Americans who identify as what they call religious nuns, people who don't identify or affiliate with any religion, keeps going up. 
Yeah. And the number of people who affiliate as Christian keeps going down, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time, you have growth among migrants and among undocumented migrants. Um, and as you say, Chris, there's an uneasy relationship there because a lot of these more politically active, right-wing, um, predominantly white Christian evangelical um, uh, congregations um, espouse anti-immigrant views, or at least are not in favor of amnesty or in favor of kind of pathways to citizenship. Um, so I think it's, it remains to be seen if there is a way for um, there to be some sort of bridging there on the basis of faith. Uh, but certainly it's not a easy or um, easily apparent uh, situation right now. You've made me realize something. We've, we've had a lot of people that have covered uh, white nationalism on the show. Uh, and we had Robert P. Jones, of course, a PRI on the show. And I send him little uh, notes every now and then. Um, he wrote the book, White Too Long. Uh, and he does a lot of studies of the breakdown of rel the religious people and in statistics through his, uh, I believe it's a pack he runs or something. Um, and uh, it made me realize that that white nationalism part really hates migrants and migration. And it's almost like a competing thing, but maybe they see more of it because they're in that religious thing. I, I always wonder why they, they have such a, they have such a thing. And I, I know it's because of the decline of, of white people and, and minorities becoming a majority by, I believe it's 2050 that's speculated. And there's real fear. I forget the name of it. There's real fear of losing that power and that money and that, uh, uh, I forget the term for it. Um, but uh, it's very interesting. And then, of course, Matthew Iglesias was on the show who talked about one billion Americans, the case for thinking bigger. And the fact that we are a shrinking country, and that doesn't help us with a growing country like China that can dominate us. Um, and that's what made America great was um, one of the things was that we're the largest market in the world and mm -hmm. we could push the dollar around. The dollar, a lot of people don't realize our ability to make everybody buy everything in dollars is, mm -hmm. is our last, uh, our last big thing. And once that changes, uh, the yen and the ruble, they've been trying to talk about fear. Anyway, I'm getting a little off on the thing there, but I'm giving some plugs to the thing that people need to realize migrants are really important to this country. This country needs to grow. You'll, everywhere I go in Utah here, mm -hmm. there's unemployment signs everywhere, and they, they want to hire people. Walmart's mm -hmm. got a big giant sign out front that's 17 bucks an hour. People are paying 20 You know, It's getting out of control. We need people. To come here to work, man, so we can keep this economy going and not fall into a deep recession. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the keys. Um, certainly, what I write about is that partly it's because of what the experience is for migrants in the country, in the United States, that makes evangelical Christianity so compelling. So because oftentimes undocumented workers are um, working in the service economy where they don't have benefits and domestic workers, they're working in restaurants, they're working in landscape. Um, that means that there's a certain kind of precariousness that day-to-day -day life has and a certain kind of vulnerability, especially without documents, especially without family. Oftentimes, these are people who are leaving their family and are um, living in fairly isolated ways. So unlike in the 1920s and um, the middle of the 20th century where migrants were living in what were termed kind of ethnic enclaves, right? Now migrant destinations tend to be marked by suburban sprawl. So places like outside of Miami, outside of Atlanta, outside of Washington, D.C. 
um, where there's not that kind of public square. It's the kind of um, Robert Putnam bowling alone that everybody um, has heard about in terms of increasing loneliness um, and isolation. And so in that context of what it actually means to be a migrant in the United States in the 21st century, um, you can see why evangelical Christianity, which offers a sense of intimate community, an intimate kind of embodied experience of God that you can talk to on a day-to-day basis that can transform your everyday experience, that can lend you power and allow you um, to feel blessed in day-to-day life if you pray and if you worship and if you embody these ideal dispositions. And there's a sense in which people can feel like they have some power and agency um, even when the society in which they are living and enmeshed in uh, refuses that to them. And so that's one of the kind of main arguments of the book is that you have to see evangelical growth among this population as going hand in hand with um, what the situation is, the failures of uh, the U.S. to take care of this population or solve issues regarding um, undocumented migration in the U.S. No, it's really unfortunate. This, the part of what made this country great was its melting pot. That uh, that uh, beautiful statue that sits in New York Harbor and, and says, "Bring us your tired, your hungry, and everybody." And uh, that's what made this country great. My my great my grandfather. No, hold on. My great grandfather is an immigrant in the 1800s from Germany. Uh, he came here, stepped off the. Uh, he came to Salt Lake City. For, the Mormons brought him in. Uh, Another example of, I wouldn't call them Christians, but another example of religion helping integrate people. And he, he couldn't speak a lick of English and stood there at the Union Pacific and they, and they took him, fed him, and he was willing to work for whatever uh, it took. And uh, that's what built this country. I wouldn't be here without mm-hmm. that. And th- this fact that we have this notion in this country now that we don't need that anymore. So, no, we do. And, and the scarcity mindset that we have in this country is just deplorable. Um, because people think, well, there's never enough. No, the, the great thing about this country is there's plenty of brilliant minds here. Steve Jobs was a son of an immigrant. Um, the guy who runs Google right now, that's the CEO, was born in a dirt fuller in India. Um, there's no, the one thing I learned about owning a lot of companies and businesses, there's no, uh, monopoly on who has all the brilliant ideas and the brilliant ideas that can change the world and make America better. Mm-hmm. I think this is great for you to highlight this because it may not change some of the prejudice minds that are out there. I didn't realize there was so much support for migrants and uh, I've always been pro-migration. Um, but knowing that there's this kind of support and knowing they're going they're they're being because the people always present that idea that, well, migrants are coming to the country and they're just, I don't know, running amok about the country. Like, I don't know who would do that. None of us do it. And yeah. So, so yeah, it it uh, it there's much more support for them and, and stuff. Maybe we should do more to support migrants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that we also have to look at American society and our American economy as completely dependent and reliant on um, on the labor of migrants um, and on the labor of undocumented migrants. That because of um, cheap, replaceable, uh, vulnerable work. Um, labor pool, uh, that's what kind of props up the U.S. economy, especially in certain industries. If you look at agriculture, for instance, Mm -hmm. if you look at the expanding service sector um, in places like Washington, D.C., where there's a bifurcation of the economy at the top and at the bottom, the only way that you have um, domestic workers taking care of the children of elites 
difference, right? Is if you have this population of low wage work or restaurants or salons or landscaping, that's a similar uh, situation. Or on the West Coast where I am, if you look at farm workers um, and agriculture and how that industry is absolutely reliant on, on migrant wages and migrant labor. Um, but part of that means that um, securing that in terms of benefit, giving those folks legal visibility, giving them um, health care, giving them access to in-state tuition um, in every state, not just in the case-by-case basis, all of that costs a lot of money and then would mean that those wages would not be so cheap for people to hire. So we have to think about this as a very much um, structural and systemic issue and why I think it's so difficult, um, certainly for uh, Congress to solve in terms of what um, immigration policy reform would actually look because there is quite an interest in maintaining um, an exploitable and a low wage pool of labor. Yeah. What people don't realize is a lot of the baby boomers checked out. They took their retirements and checked out. A lot of people in the later gen Z checked out, took their retirements early and checked out. They're gone. And for 20 years now, maybe 40 years, I've been hearing about how eventually the large baby boomer generation, which is larger than any, uh, any that has come after, once they retire and disappear from the thing, we there's not really good support system for the Social Security and not only keeping those guys uh, in Social Security, but also just keeping everything going. And um, we need to expand the population of this country. We, we have to, or we're a dying population. You look at what's going on in Japan where they have huge, um, I don't know if the right word is gentrification issues, but they have huge issues between their older generation and the younger generation. The younger generation doesn't have kids either. So their future is really almost dying, and some people predict it will die. I think even Elon Musk said some stuff about that. But what's happened is the boomers have left early because of COVID, and that's why we're struggling. And people are like, why are prices going up? But we really like the more pay we're getting. And you're like, it's because companies are having to compete. There's not enough employees to hire. Uh, we're at the lowest employment, I think, of ever. Uh, in, I don't know, since they started tracking it. And yeah, we really need more people that come here. But everyone's like, we don't want people here because they'll, I don't know, increase the prices. No, they won't. Actually, you probably get some stability from what's going on right now. Yeah, and I think that we're in a situation um, in the United States and not just for migrants, but just in general, what it means to live in the 21st century where people are more and more left to their own devices, their own personal strength, their own willpower to fix these broader societal problems. So with less institutional support, with less kind of social welfare programming, right, across the board, people are left to figure it out on their own, to work on their own interior landscapes and feelings and think about how best to do that. And so certainly um, Brazilian migrants and migrants in general that turn to evangelical Christianity is part and parcel of that, which is that in 21st century America, there are growing rates of depression, there are growing rates of anxiety, there's growing rates of loneliness, of people living on their own, right? More than they ever have before. Um, and all of these trends mean that people are left to figure that out on their own. And so in many ways, it's not surprising that a religion that valorizes um, turning inward in many ways, working on one's own righteousness, um, 
using mechanisms like prayer and Bible study and um, thinking about one's family within the lens of, of God, all of those things mean that you're responding in the only way possible to what the current situation is. Um, because so much of the social fabric um, for everybody has been um, uh, starting to fray. Yeah. And just expanding more people here and building it out. And we're an entrepreneur's country. We're a country where brilliant ideas can succeed and then they employ others. Like I mentioned with Steve Jobs, look how many people Apple employs and everything because of really him. I mean, it was an important part of it, but, but really the marketing behind was with Steve Jobs and, and everything he did, the changes he made. We, we have these incredible cell phones now that have driven so many different economies and social media things. All that came out of the iPhone and his father was an immigrant. Do we need to, um, do we need to embrace immigrants easier? Do we need to give them driver's licenses sooner and not do all this stupid stuff? Like I, I almost have the opinion that look, Let's get them in the, let's get them in the U.S. program. Let's get them taxed. Let's get them on the W-2s. Let's get, let's, uh, I think it's 30,000 or whatever it costs in years to go through citizenship programs with us. Why don't we, why don't we just get them in the tax base? Let's go. Well, and the interesting thing, Chris, is that many of these people who live here undocumented and get no benefits are yeah. paying their taxes. They are still paying their taxes. Oh, wow. They get tax ID numbers. They don't have social security numbers and they don't get health insurance. They don't get in-state tuition, but they pay their taxes. Um, and so exactly what you're saying about the case of Steve Jobs, I think that many of the, many of the migrants that I met are, are painfully aware of. They're painfully yeah. aware of how they're contributing. They're painfully aware of the fact that they've come with the best of intentions to mm -hmm. work hard, to provide for their families, to contribute to this country. Um, and many of them were motivated to come because of the American dream, right? Because they wanted a better life. They aspired for a better life for themselves and their families. Um, and that's part of the deep despair that they experience here is that what they had thought and what they had believed um, is so divergent from what they experience in terms of exploitation and marginalization. Mm -hmm. And that really the option before them is to figure out how to imbue meaning and purpose onto their presence in the United States through this other channel. Um, yeah. And evangelical churches do a really good job of that because they say you're here for a reason. It's not just chance. It wasn't a mistake. You're here to meet God. You're here to improve the United States through your vision. Um, and it's all going to work out. So it's a very kind of consoling message when you think about it, especially in the context of that kind of grave disillusionment that many uh, people experience once they get here. Yeah, it's sad that we don't support people better. Um, what made this country is, the, like I said, the melting pot. Everybody coming here and, and us being a, a nation of so many different diverse groups of people. Even in California, I can go to the little barrios in California where you have the, the Chinese food and Chinese culture and stuff. And you can go all over LA and you can it's just every little area and the food is just so excellent. In fact, I'm getting hungry now. Um, and the people are wonderful. I've met people in LA that they've probably been there for 20 or 30 years. They've never speak the link. They can't speak a lick of English, but you go in the restaurants and mm -hmm. wow. The food is amazing. The people are nice. Um, they're pretty much integrated in society. If you make great food, you don't have to speak my language. <laughs> it's not my language. It's not my country. That's the beautiful part about this country. It's, it's all a mixture of everybody. And hey, man, if you pay your taxes and we all get along and no one gets shot, we're all happy, I guess. I don't know. 
that's one way of thinking about it. Anything more you want to touch on or tease out about your book? No, I would just say, I think that again, hand in hand with the kind of growth of migrant evangelical Christianity is the enduring stalemate in terms of how we treat migrants in this country and kind of a um, inattention to what you're saying, inattention to the great contributions um, and reliance that we have and that it's all of a piece. Yeah. People come here with the dream of coming to America and, and no other place in the world is a place. No, no one's like going, man, I really want to go to Russia someday and live there. That sounds like a dream. Like I'm willing to die to get into Russia. No one's doing that. And the fact that people have that attitude towards us and they want to come here and do something great with it. Uh, we should allow it. And I hope your book will open more people's eyes and, and maybe overcome some people's prejudices that they have and uh, maybe learn a whole lot more about uh, about the future of this country. Because we need to grow. Uh, a, a business is dying. A, a business that's dying is a business of going to business. A business that's shrinking is a business that's dying. We're a country that's shrinking and dying right now. And uh, our birth rates, our marriage rates are abysmal. Uh, I think they got this little bump on on marriage rates, but that might be because of uh, uh, some holdover from COVID and people finally getting around to it. But uh, it's been wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate it. There you go. Give me your .com so people can find you on the interwebs too, please. So if you go to the University of Oregon and you just Google my name, um, Jay Richland, uh, Johanna Richland, my faculty page will come up, the University of Oregon. Okay. All right. And uh, check out the book, uh, order it up, In the Hands of God, How Evangelical Belonging Transforms Migrant Experience in the United States, came out May 24th, 2022, wherever fine books are sold. Thanks, my for tuning in. Go to goodreads.com, Fortune's Chris Voss. Go to youtube.com, Fortune's Chris Voss. Any other place uh, you might might, uh, see the Chris Voss show, subscribe there. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe. And we'll see you guys next time.